it, it might not look like we're doing very much here. You know, sitting, breathing, nothing terribly exciting. You know, if somebody was to look at us, they'd probably get bored rather quickly. Um, we don't have um, like audiences that clap at the end of the sittings or when we um, attain some stunning meditative feat. No, bravo, bravo, bravo. And yet, I do think that meditation and can produce profound benefits, and you've probably all tasted those benefits, or you wouldn't have come to a solitary retreat like this. What are those benefits? Scientists try to measure the effect of meditation. How does meditation affect the body? How does meditation affect the mind? You're observing that with mindfulness. Scientists, of course, will try to look at um, specific physical measurable things, like what's the density of the gray matter in the brain? How do people respond differently to painful stimulus if they have been meditating or not meditating? How does meditation affect one's attentiveness, one's ability to focus and stay on task, complete projects, be keen in observation or enhance memory? How many days, how many sick days do workers take? Does that get reduced or increased with, um, um, with meditation practice? What about our perceptual acuity? Do we see more clearly? Do we taste more clearly? Do we hear more clearly? How does meditation affect our ability to empathize with somebody else or the accuracy with which we can read another person's facial expressions? Does meditation affect our, our tendency to want to help, to bring compassion into action, to give to somebody in need? How does it affect our internal experience, self-reported experiences of happiness or contentment, self-esteem or confidence? Even without scientific verification, I think most meditators do recognize an increase of calmness and relaxation, an improvement in our clarity and understanding, a balance in our energy, a greater ability to pause before acting on impulses of greed or hate, and a a greater ease of being able to simply let go of what we cannot control. Beyond the tangible and measurable benefits of meditation, what part does meditation play on the path of awakening? Is meditation unnecessary support for awakening? Does meditation inevitably lead to awakening? Is meditation an optional feature of a, med- of a, of an awake- of a path of awakening? Certainly when we look at the Buddhist teachings, we find much more than meditation instructions. When we look at the early discourses, we find far more teachings that are related to wisdom and right view and understanding than we do instructions in how to meditate. This is a path of moral discipline. It's a path of mental development 
and of wisdom teachings. Sometimes people think, well, meditation might not be necessary because some people apparently get enlightened suddenly, spontaneously, just when hearing a teaching or when interacting with a powerful teacher or the Buddha, or perhaps even just while sitting at a bus stop or some ordinary daily activity. We hear about stories like this, but how do we know if they're genuine enlightenment experiences? How do we know if they reflect the qualities of the awakened mind that the Buddha described? Perhaps some of you have had very deep and profound insights and experiences of letting go and release and profound peace, doing things other than sitting or walking meditation. And you might be aware of many instances in the Pali Canon where people were apparently freed, became arhats, awakened completely, while listening to the Buddha teach, not meditating in seclusion, while teaching others, actually talking, they got it, while turning out a lamp or lying down to um, go to one's bed or sleep, apparently doing things other than deep and intensive meditation, these awakening moments occurred. I'm a little skeptical. I wouldn't come to the conclusion, though, that meditation is not necessary because um, virtually all of the ones that I could find and that there's much information about seem to indicate that those individuals had a profoundly intense background in meditation. They had already developed samadhi and insight. So there was a moment that might have happened where their presence and their samadhi and their um, insight and understanding met, and met, came together in kind of a moment of perfection in a, in, a, in, a, in a moment other than sitting meditation. But I'm not aware of individuals who had that awakening without any background whatsoever in meditation, at least not in the Pali Canon. Maybe some of you are familiar with them. You can let me know if there are some that I'm not aware of. But what I reflect upon is not so much the significance of what we are doing in the moment that an awakening experience occurs, that that profound moment of release, of letting go, of dispassion toward all phenomena really comes to um, its culmination. But what we do a lot in meditation is we cultivate conducive conditions. Conducive conditions for insight, conducive conditions for letting go, conducive conditions for not grasping, not constructing a self, for not comparing which perpetuates conceit, conducive conditions for awakening. We cultivate these conducive conditions by diligently abandoning what we discern as unwholesome and cultivating what we recognize as wholesome. So we actively abandon lust and hatred, restlessness and distraction, dullness and delusion, arrogance and conceit, 
and we intentionally cultivate tranquility and calmness, concentration, mindfulness, a balanced effort, equanimity, and wisdom. From the Seika Sutta in the Middle Link Discourses, it says, Suppose there were a hen with eight or ten or twelve eggs, which she had covered, incubated, and nurtured properly. Even though she did not wish, oh, that my chicks might pierce their shells with the points of their claws and beaks and hatch out safely. Yet the chicks are capable of piercing their shells with the points of their claws and beaks and hatching out safely. So too, when a noble disciple has thus become one who, one, is possessed of virtue and restraint, two, who guards the doors of the sense faculties, three, who possesses seven good qualities, four, who obtains at will without trouble or difficulty the four jhanas that constitute the higher mind and provide a pleasant abiding here and now, That one is called one in higher training, who has entered upon the way. The eggs are unspoiled. This one is capable of breaking out, capable of enlightenment and attaining the supreme security from bondage. If you're wondering what those seven qualities are, they include, it's a sub-list within a list. (laughs) Seven good qualities include faith, which is a confidence in the teachings of the Buddha. Shame regarding misconduct, fear of wrongdoing, that inner force that really prevents us from doing harmful actions. The fourth one is learning much, actually being able to remember, consolidate, and comprehend what one has learned. Being energetic in abandoning unwholesome states and undertaking wholesome states. Being possessed of the highest skill of mindfulness and memory. And the last one of the seven is wisdom regarding the rise and disappearance that leads to the destruction of the taints. Uh, You don't have to instantly memorize this whole list of what seemed like four simple ones, but then they inserted a list of seven in the middle. So you get a few more. But these are good things. These are conditions that we cultivate so that we are capable of breaking free of bondage, so that we are capable of breaking the fetters that keep us trapped. These are the qualities and the skills of one in higher training. So when we undertake this meditative training, this Buddhist training, this higher training, we don't view our practice as limited to just tranquilizing agitation and calming the mind and producing some kind of pleasant state of relaxation. The meditative path includes a broad range of practices, some of which don't look like sitting meditation at all. We actively purify the mind through acts of renunciation. We cultivate investigation skills that do enable us to sit down and examine what we find. What happens in that point of contact where consciousness intersects with the world? We practice bringing mindfulness to that, that refined moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and knowing our inner 
mental experience in the present moment, right now. And when we practice that in the more kind of structured and simple container of sitting meditation or walking meditation or a quiet retreat environment, we become pretty good at it. We learn how to observe and be mindful in a moment of contact that we can then bring into many other activities, any moment in our lives. Do you relate to sensory encounters in ways that are clear and undistorted, mindful, present, seeing it as impermanent, as empty phenomena being known? Or are you relating in habitual ways that keep perpetuating clinging, grasping, resistance, aversion, and all the various forms of unsatisfactoriness and suffering? Dukkha, what might be translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, does not just refer to emotional grief or um, painful emotions or physical pain. Dukkha arises out of an unwise relationship with our experience. Dukkha occurs any time that we identify with or cling to things that are inevitably changing. So in meditation, we examine habit patterns, patterns that reveal how we are encountering life, how we are knowing the world. And the world is the world of the senses. The world is the world that is known. That's where the project of meditation um, revolves. It revolves around knowing what is known, what is encountered in our experiential reality. When our attention meets sensory experience, do we recognize it? In that moment of seeing, smelling, tasting, thought, emotion, whatever, do we recognize it right then and there as impermanent, as ungraspable, as a conditioned mind-body event? Or is the mind distorting that experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking, either by trying to make pleasant experiences last, or make unpleasant experiences go away, or fabricating a self-position that judges, assesses, and owns the experience, or by constructing interpretations, stories, explanations that become just one more form of attachment to a concept of the experience. Missing the impermanent nature of the experience. There are four distortions of perceptions called in Pali vipalasas from the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Fours. There are these four distortions of perception, four distortions of thought, and four distortions of views. Number one. To hold that in the impermanent there is permanence. This is a distortion of perception, thought, and views. Two. To hold that in suffering there is happiness. This is a distortion of perception, thought, and views. Three. To hold that in what is not self there is a self. This is a distortion of perception, thought, and views. And four. To hold that in the foul there is beauty. This is a distortion of perception, thought, 
and views. When we clearly see the impermanent and unsatisfactory nature of conditioned experience, we can free the mind from these misperceptions, these misperceptions that keep putting this constructed sense of self in the middle of experience and blinding us to what that experience actually is, a dynamic, momentary, changing process of cognition. Something is being known. What's being known? It doesn't need to be a story of self. What is being known? What is being known? How are you relating to what is being known? The path of awakening is founded upon virtue and it deepens and it depends, I'm sorry, it depends upon right view, a right view that understands lived experience in terms of dukkha, suffering, in terms of the causes of dukkha and the end of dukkha. The experience of awakening is a complete, direct, and penetrating knowledge of dukkha and the end of dukkha. It's not some cool experience that, oh, we had it and now we bliss out forever. There's a profound understanding that comes in the experience of awakening that shows us in the moment of experience, we have a choice. Are we going to perpetuate attachment and dukkha or turn away from those misperceptions that keep sustaining, that keep perpetuating the cycle of suffering? We can frame our understanding of the development of meditation in the context of both letting go and um, virtue, both what we um, both the foundation of good qualities that we develop, and also the clear recognition that even those cannot be clung to, even those good qualities, even what we develop in meditation, the concentration, the insight, the wisdom, the insight knowledge the calmness, the tranquility, the joy, even those cannot be clung to. Meditation techniques do bring many benefits, but some of them might be side benefits, better health perhaps, more productivity, a clearer mind, better memory, a harmonious and wise lifestyle choices which would bring greater health and balance. But the Buddha was not teaching stress reduction techniques. He wasn't teaching meditators to, um, disciples to uh, sort of interact in their daily lives in a way that was more productive for social aims. He wasn't offering new forms of um, personal therapy or personal coaching. The Dhamma that he taught is a profound path that develops virtue, cultivates the mind, and leads to liberating wisdom. Sometimes, I think generally, perhaps not in this room, but generally people sometimes set the bar a little too low and assume that, well, my circle of friends doesn't have any enlightened folks in it, so, yeah, it's not possible. 
I think one of the most important things I can do as a Dhamma teacher is encourage you to cultivate the aspiration for awakening and to know it is possible in this life. We don't need to be satisfied with minor and mundane improvements in our personalities and social relationships. We can value them, we can appreciate them as the side benefits of our practice and as a reflection, as a manifestation of our lived wisdom. But even if we don't know what this moment of awakening might be, this experience of profound and ultimate release, we can still nurture an aspiration for the ending of greed, for the ending of hatred, for the ending of delusion. Because we can trust. That's good. That's good. Any weakening of these root poisons of greed, hate, and delusion and the possibility of an ending to them, that is good. So I really do feel that this is one of the most important things I can do as a Dhamma teacher, is to point to, is to speak to the liberating potential of this path. In one discourse, the Buddha predicted that the Dhamma would decline in the world when people lost interest in the liberating teachings. From the Samyutta Nikaya, it says, when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness are being recited, they will not be eager to listen to them, nor lend an ear to them, nor apply their minds to be studied and mastered. But when discourses that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, are recited, they will be eager to listen to them. They will lend an ear to them, will apply their minds to understand them, and they will think it's those teachings that should be studied and mastered. In this way, the discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. Therefore, you should train yourself thus. When the discourse is spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness are being recited, we will be eager to listen to them. We will lend an ear to them. We will apply our minds to understand them, and we will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. The Buddhist tradition offers four stages of awakening, in which the fetters that bind the mind to the cycle of suffering are gradually abandoned. I believe that the first stage of enlightenment in the Buddhist teachings is actually attained by many insight meditation practitioners and has been attained by many right in this center. It's called the attainment of stream entry, sotapanna, and it functions to clarify the path. It's a stage of spiritual maturity in which three fetters are abandoned. The fetter of the attachment to personality view, the doubt about the efficacy in the teachings, and adherence to practice vows as a means of purification. But these are the fetters that obstruct the path. So the realization of stream entry is the entrance to the path. The path has now become clear. Someone has had a genuine experience of Nibbana and knows it's possible 
and knows the path. But the root poisons of greed, hate, and delusion have not yet been uprooted. It's a powerful and significant experience to realize Nibbana for the first time. It occurs in conjunction with a moment of profound release. This, what we call the realization of Nibbana. But it really marks only the entrance to the Noble Eightfold Path, the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. In fact, it's only with this genuine awakening at the first stage that one is said to now be practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Prior to that, the language is one is practicing the Eightfold Path. And then when we really see the path through this profound experience of the first stage of awakening, now we are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. But we still need to practice because greed, hate, and delusion have not been uprooted. There's much more that we need to do to purify the mind. But this experience of Nibbana will have changed how we perceive our relationship to the world. It changes how we perceive sensory contact because it abandons the person, the position the the personality view, that strong adherence to the sense of really, truly being the one who is having the experience. Now, selfing in subtler ways will still arise. Conceit is still operating. Delusion is still present. But we'll no longer argue it. We'll be able to see in any experience that we look at the empty not-self nature of it because we will have already experienced it for ourselves. There'll be no delusion about it once we look. So it changes then our orientation to sensory contact. We still perceive things. We still feel both pleasure and pain. But with that, but with full awakening, it's only with the full awakening that that contact, that experience of contact will be free from all greed, all hate, and all delusion. Perception will no longer be distorted by taking things to be what they are not, such as permanent or capable of providing us lasting happiness or possessable or to be a a, um, real feature of self. Meditative training and enlightenment experiences gradually weaken and finally put an end to all these distortions of perception and all attachments. Even after the Buddha's full and profound awakening and enlightenment, he continued to live as a renunciate in the forests and he continued to maintain a meditation practice. And you might wonder, hadn't he already finished what he needed to do? I mean, some people say that to me. I've done a lot of retreat practice. I love retreat practice. And they say, you're going on another retreat. Didn't you get it? You know, why do you still need one more? Haven't you already learned it? 
But I think it's very beautiful that even the Buddha who had completed all the four stages of awakening and had truly put an end to greed, hate, and delusion still chose to continue to meditate. And when he was asked why, he said for two reasons. Both for happiness, because it's nice, it's fun, it's pleasant. Okay, maybe not always, but it produces happiness. And out of compassion for future generations because he knows it's good. Meditation creates highly conducive conditions for awakening, partly because we are practicing letting go. Whatever meditation technique you are emphasizing, some of you might be using the noting practice, some of you might be doing loving kindness practice, some of you might be working with the breath in the area of the nostrils, or upper lip. Some of you might be emphasizing more samadhi practice. Some of you might be contemplating the impermanence of phenomena. Some of you may be having a more open, spacious awareness in your orientation. There are many, many, many different techniques. And one of the wonderful things about this center is you can practice many different techniques here. But I think for any technique, to really lead to awakening, there must be a component of renunciation and of letting go embedded in it. We're not just trying to get good at and become the one who can meditate really well and meditate right. We're letting go. We're letting go. And we're letting go. Meditation is a practice of letting go. And it also produces states of profound peace and joy. So it's okay to enjoy meditation. But even if we're happily sitting and walking, it doesn't guarantee awakening. We need to be willing to abandon, to renounce, and to let go of all the habits that are rooted in defilements, the habits of self-grasping. We need to be willing to turn our attention to meet not just the peace and the bliss, but to actually meet the defilements, and that's not so fun. But that's the good work that we do, and we can appreciate the opportunity that we have to actually do this Really good work. We let go of the unwholesome states, the hindrances, the fetters, the defilements. We don't let them, we don't feed them through continued action. We don't fuel them through um, obsessive thoughts. We find ways of letting them go, of letting them go, of letting them go. We find ways of starving the fetters and the defilements of their fuel. And we abandon the identification, the conceit that I am doing this, that I am this experience, this state is mine. Even the most wholesome, beautiful states that we cultivate and to develop through meditation, we cannot claim to be mine. Awakening is about freedom, not producing a nicer attachment. The Buddha made the instructions very simple for us. He taught that we not only must he taught that we must only abandon what is already not ours. From the simile of the snake in the middle link discourses. 
Whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is it that is not yours? Materiality is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Feeling is not yours. Perceptions are not yours. Formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Abandon them. When you have abandoned them, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. So that includes every possible experience of body and mind. That's the only thing. That's what's not ours, and that's what we let go. So you might contemplate for a moment, what are you reluctant? What do you resist abandoning? And if you want to awaken, consider the possibility of perhaps letting that go, letting that attachment end. Try it out here in this simple, quiet environment where you have no worldly pressures, when you don't have to put on any kind of of show for your professional role or your family expectations or your social views. Try letting go of that here and see what happens. It's possible that even the deeply held attachments, the ones that structure who we are and how we orient towards experience, it may be that we don't even need to cling to that. So maybe we can have a few silent minutes together and then you're free to sit as long as you wish or depart as you wish. I won't ring the bell or anything. You just do what you like. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.